Welcome to Living the Writing Life podcast. My guest today is noted author Jeffrey S. Stevens. Jeffrey is the author of six novels, the Jordan Sander espionage thriller series, Crimes and Passion, the first in a planned series featuring Lieutenant Robbie White and his latest book, Bull's Errand. He has also recently completed a fifth espionage thriller, the book that follows Crimes and Passion called Murder, Money and Marriage, and another standalone titled The Next 10 Years that deals with a famous media mogul who disappears. In today's conversation, we'll talk about how personal life experiences can serve as an inspiration for writing and take the writer down a different path from previous projects. So welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. Well, this is just going to be so fascinating um, because I'm, I'm just very intrigued by how you sort of went into a, a different direction. You know, as I said, you, you've written six novels to date, but your latest one, Fool's Errand, is markedly different from the other five in that the focus is more on family-based dynamics rather than espionage. The book explores the relationship between a father and a son and the events that will ultimately lead that young man on an international treasure hunt that causes him to confront a collection of interesting characters as well as himself. It's been described as poignant and entertaining, humorous and exciting, romantic and mysterious. And since I've read it, and I have to tell you, I loved it. I can testify to what a fascinating story it is, but it clearly isn't a thriller. So I have to ask why the shift in genre and were you concerned that your readers would be expecting one type of book and instead get another? Well, I could tell you my publisher certainly was. <laughs> but, you know, as, as the old line goes, every comedian in the end wants to play Hamlet. And so I think when you write, you write all different sorts of things. And to go back in time, when my first novel was published, and I was laughing when you're saying, you know, I've written six novels. Any of your listeners who are writers know there are a whole lot more novels sitting in a drawer. <laughs> we won't discuss any of those. They're unreadable. But, you know, uh, when I, I had written a couple of different things, I met a gentleman who became my agent and he tried to sell one of these other books and he wasn't having any success. And it was one of these, what else have you got? And I had had a friend who we were very close in a short period of time. We became very friendly. We were both single and those were the days in New York City and so on and so on. And we hung out together. And I found out quite accidentally, and it's a great story, I'll tell you sometime, that he was with the CIA. And so I decided to write a book about him. And I know I'm making this into a long preamble, but the point was, I said to, I said to my agent, Bob, I said, I do have this book. It's about somebody who pretends not to be a CIA agent and really is. And he said, well, let's have a look. And boom, that got sold. So that was the first book to be published. It did Okay. And they said, we want more. And so I wound up writing four of them. And as you said, I have fifth in the can. I have to tell you, I never expected or intended or was interested in writing a series about this character, Jordan Sandor. That was never the intent because I wanted to explore different things. So during the pandemic, uh, you know, people have different conversations. I mean, family becomes very, very important. As you know, you don't get to see your family. 
you know, I was talking to somebody saying, you know, like they haven't seen their grandparents in so long because they can't risk exposing them to the virus. I mean, now we're getting the, the, the vaccines, as you and I discussed. But the point is that I wanted it to go in another direction. I felt that we didn't really need at that moment another shoot 'em up thriller as brilliant as my thrillers are. We, you know, I wanted to do something different. So I, we had a conversation. And, you know, you recall, like in your college days, you would have these wacky conversations about is there life on another planet? What really happens to your soul when you die? Is your energy dispersed into the universe? And one of the questions we used to have some fun with after a couple of beers is if you could spend one day with somebody who you haven't seen for whatever reason, who would it be? And some people would say, I'd like to spend one day with Mahatma Gandhi. I'd like to spend a day with Jesus Christ and so forth. But a lot of people say, God, what I wouldn't give for one more day with my dad, what I wouldn't give for one more day with my mom, I'd like to, them to see where I am now in life. I'd like to talk to them. I'd like to ask them some questions I didn't ask. I'd like to tell them how much I love them. I know that sounds kind of corny, but it really was the jumping off point for Fool's Aaron because I thought my dad died young. He missed so much of what happened to me in my life. I, I really would love to speak with him again. And obviously realizing that's an impossibility, I came up with a device, which was, as you know, from the first page of the book, our narrator, our protagonist, gets a box of papers from his mother that she had hidden away in the attic because she didn't want her son to be exposed to all her father, his father's craziness. And in there was a letter the father had written just before he died, six years before. And so here was an opportunity, I thought, to have this father speak to his son again six years later. I mean, wow. I, I mean, I got chills thinking of the idea. And then I said, but now you have to build a story around this. <laughs> the letter, I mean, you, you don't want a Hemingway short story about. And so he opened the letter and it was fine. You know, they, <laughs> we wanted a little bit more than that. So that's when I came up with the plot that the father would be this sort of ne'er-do-well who never really grabbed the brass ring he was always reaching for. And he leaves this letter for his son telling him about some stolen cash of money. And even though the son was a total straight shooter, the son has to decide whether or not to follow one of his father's crazy dreams or whether to put the envelope away with the letter. And since the name of the book is Fool's Errand, we already know what he did. And so that's a very long-winded way of telling you how I came to write the book. And I had such great fun with it because it's about the father and the son at the heart of it, as you know, but it's also an international treasure hunt. There's a romance, there's danger, there's a little mafia stuff in there. And so it, it was it was a lot of fun. It was really a serious departure from you know, uh, tracking down Arab terrorists or in the rest of the stuff that I had done in the Jordan Sandler series. So I, I liked it. It's, it's tough in this business, as I don't have to tell you, when you write a standalone novel, it's very tough to market. It's very tough to sell because people want to know, aren't you, aren't you going to give me 73 Jack Reacher stories? No, this, was, this is a standalone book, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm glad people are liking it. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and it really is. I mean, it is, it's fascinating because of all the different settings, but just the dynamics of the relationship. And, and the learning, the learning that the, the character goes through about a better understanding, because, it, you know, it, it seemed to me, and now I'm coming at it as, as a reader, it, it seemed to me he had like this one image of his father, or this one idea of who his father was, but then 
the, his father became a, a, a more developed character even in his mind then. Sure. Before he learned about him. So how, sure. how long, when did you start working on it? Oh, God. Um, I had an idea about the father-son thing. And you know how this works with writing. It's never, sometimes they just come fully blown. This was, I had, I had the story about the father-son thing in my head for many years because my dad died. Wow, he died a long time ago. He died at 50 of a heart attack. He was you know, very young, obviously. And so I had different ideas about that. But then when it came together in my head, this was a book that wrote itself pretty much. I, there are some books you work harder on, not that they're not as good. Sometimes they're better. Sometimes they're not as good, whatever. This book really wrote itself. I mean, I was enjoying this. I mean, when he was, when he was going to different restaurants in New York that I had been to, because remember, it's, it's set, by the way, the, just so listeners know, it's set in 1979, which is part of what the story is about because things go back to World War II and all this kind of stuff. So I thought about those restaurants I had been to, you know, having dinner at La Cote Basque or, or uh, you know, drinks at different bars there and then being out in Vegas back in the day and so on. It was really, uh, it just kind of, I was, it was writing itself. I had, I had the idea, I had the basic outline because I work from an outline. I know some writers don't. And it just, it just really came together quickly. One of the, uh, the side stories, you said I could get into side stories. One of the interesting things about the book for me, it's the shortest book I've ever published. It's not that short. I mean, as, as I tell my friends, it's the same length as Catcher in the Rye. So how bad could it be? <laughs> and it's half, and by the way, it's half again as long as The Great Gatsby, but um, it was 20,000 words longer. And there were several more scenes particularly with the protagonist and his father and his protagonist and his mother. And I have a friend who's a writer in, in DC and we read each other's stuff. His name is Chris Beakey. He writes some really edgy mysteries. If you haven't read him, he's fun to read. And Chris loved the book. And he called me up one day and he said, I have something really sad to tell you. And, he, and I said, what is it? He said, you're going to have to kill about four of these scenes. <laughs> I said, no, I love these scenes. He said, I know you love these scenes but they're destroying the pacing of the book. Because in the end, readers love a page turner and it is a treasure hunt. And you can't stop in the middle of the treasure hunt to say, now, let me tell you about the time my mother almost died. It was in the hospital and all that. He said, it's such a wonderful scene. It brought tears to my eyes and I get rid of it. And I had a hard time with that, but I worked at it. And I will tell you that we cut a lot of stuff. And at the end, he said, Jeff, I love this book. Leave it just as it is. And I took it to the publisher and they loved it. And that was that. So, it, you know, so it, it wrote itself, but it actually overwrote itself. To a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, you, you do bring up a really good point. And I'm, and I'm glad that you did um, in, in the value of like your friend basically served as a beta reader for you. Oh, and yeah. he was honest and he told you what worked and he told you what, in his opinion, you should get rid of. Um, and, and I think a lot of times new writers are thinking, you know, don't touch my baby. That this, this is the way it was born and, and I don't want anybody else's input. But you and I both know, I mean, it, it is so invaluable to have somebody come to it cold because if, if they know their stuff and they're going to give you an honest opinion, it, it makes the work so much better. Oh, it really does. It really does. Hemingway, to mention him again, but Hemingway had a, a great quote. Um, 
something about, and it was a little, it was a little harsh, but it was something about writing is all about killing your young or something like that, you know, and you really have to recognize that to make a novel work, not so true in short stories, but to make a novel work, you sometimes have to kill the scenes that you love the best. And mm -hmm. this one that I had with the main character when he's off at college and does not know as he's taking his final exams that his mother has is, you know, is dying in the hospital, possibly. Um, it's a very, very tense and, and passionate scene and, and, and upsetting and all this. And it just had nothing to do with this book. Nothing. I mean, it really didn't. And so uh, so I had to cut it. I still have it somewhere. Maybe I'll use it someday. But, um, yeah, you really have to have that. And I'm very fortunate to have a couple of really talented people who look at my my stuff. Uh, one is Chris Beaky, who's a novelist. Another is Larry Garinger, who is really just an idea man. He is the king of the what ifs. And uh, and then uh, and I have a, a, this wonderful editor by the name of Ryan Steck. But but just to tell you a quick story about Larry, because he is really something. And he's a guy who will tell me he'll just say, I don't know what to do to fix it, but this doesn't work. This scene doesn't work. I mean, that's what he does. But I had written a book, as you said, uh, The Murder Mystery, Crimes and Passion. And. It, the, the featured players in it are Robbie White, the detective, and the psychologist who's at the center of the story in this murder mystery. And I had written the entire book and I gave it to Larry and he's just sitting there. He comes, he comes over after he's read it and he sits down, he's shaking his head and he said, I hate to ask you this question. I said, go ahead, go ahead. He said, what if the psychologist was a woman? Because I had written her as a man. His name was Randy Conway, Right. Mm -hmm. And I just changed Randy to an I. I rewrote the entire book. I created a romance between Randy and the detective. And the entire book worked for me at that point. Up to then, it was just like, it wasn't even a buddy movie. It was just a little too dry. But it, he would come up with what ifs like that that would drive me crazy because I'd say, oh, no, I'm going to have to rewrite the entire book. <laughs> <laughs> but he was right. He was right. So I'm very lucky about that. Yeah, you have to have people that you trust. Uh, be able to read your things. And I do that uh, for other people. And, uh, and it's fun. And if you feel like you've helped, it's really a very rewarding process, as you know, mm -hmm. I feel good about it. Absolutely. Um, because, you know, you, you brought up COVID, you, you brought up um, the loss of your father at, at such an early age. You were how old when your dad died? I was 22. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, you know, my, I mean, my, my, sister, my sisters, by the way, were both are both younger than I. So it was uh, in some ways even more dramatic for them. But when it's a father and son and we were so close mm -hmm. and it was so sudden, I mean, you know, I was working my way through law school at the time and I got a call in the office. You know, dad's had a heart attack. And by the time I got home, he was gone. I mean, we didn't get to have those last words together. Nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah. So it was it was very tough and it was a tough adjustment for me because of the tightness of our relationship. So I sort of I sort of promised myself that one day I would write a book about him and obviously fictionalize the guy a lot. But mm -hmm. uh, but as you know, at the beginning of the book, the dedication is this is for Blackie. Now we're even <laughs> because you, know, <laughs> you never wanted me to be a writer, by the way. He yeah. never, that's a whole other story. Never wanted me to be a writer. Writers are all failures, alcoholics. They're all they're all losers. I mean, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And broke. And broke. We're all and, broke. And broke. Yeah, yeah, totally broke. Yeah, F. Scott Fitzgerald, he died. The Great Gatsby wasn't even in print. I mean, you know, Hemingway, we know what happened to Hemingway, but he was an alcoholic and uh, depressed. And, so anyway, so 
I had to write a book about my father just to get even. So what, what do you think you learned since this book was not just a novel, not like one of your typical novels, what do you think you learned about yourself in the process of writing this book about a father-son relationship? I'm so glad you asked because I could go on all day, but I'm going to give you the pithy answer that I can give to that question, which is, and I could almost get teary-eyed saying this. I'm sorry. I don't mean to say I'm not a corny guy. In the end, as parents, we all do the best we can. I mean, there are some exceptions. There are evil people in the world. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But when you have kids, there's no instruction manual that comes along with it. I mean, you could read Dr. Spock or whatever you want to read, but the truth is, this is a fly by the seat of your pants operation. I have two sons, and I know that to be true. And in writing the book and looking back at some of the incidents, which I fictionalized in the book, but some had kernels of truth in them, some were just all made up, I realized that as flawed a personality as my father's was, and it, and it was, he did the best he could. He did what he thought was right to make me the best person that I could be. And that's, that's what makes me, you know, feel like emotional about it, you know, because I think it's important, like some of it, you know, we get upset with our parents, we feel they're too critical of us, uh, we don't get the support we need, they didn't hug me enough, they didn't love me enough, they didn't come to my Little League games, whatever the heck your story is that you're currently telling your psychiatrist for the last 10 years. <laughs> As a grown person, we should have gotten over this by now, folks, but But for me, what I really learned in the book as I wrote it was he really, even even if he was making mistakes, he was making them out of love. And I think that when people read this book, if they're lucky enough to have one or both parents still around, go give them a hug. That's what you should do. That's what I want people to do when they get finished with this book. And and you're absolutely right, um, you know, all all the way around, because... um, because it, it, it isn't easy being a parent. And whether you have one kid, whether you have 10 kids, and then each kid is different. And at the same time, I, you know, when you're, when you're the child, you don't know what else is going on in your parents' life. And you don't really understand, until, you know, it's like the old saying, well, you, you don't understand until you wait till you have kids and then you'll see, right? But my father used to say that, by the way. Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, and, and it's like, yeah, it, it isn't that easy. And um, no, I, I just I just think it is um, it is it is just uh, it is touching from that standpoint. You know, I, I was really fascinated by the dynamics between the two of them. Now, from a technical standpoint, was the, and you touched on it a little bit about saying that that it went went together very well, very quickly. Was the process different with this book than um, for the espionage thrillers? Oh yeah, I I would say very, very different. As you know, certain genre of novels have different conventions. Like for example, uh, Crimes and Passion and the sequel, there are murders involved. And so you have to decide like in Columbo, do you know who the murderer is from the beginning? And is it all about the detective figuring it out? Or are you riding along with the detective to figure it out? And you have to choose and you choose your path. And there are certain basic, I hate to use the word rules, but there really are conventions that, that, uh, that pertain to that sort of a book. So every now and then somebody breaks the mold like uh, Agatha Christie did in the merger, murder of Roger Ackroyd, 
where at the end you find out that the narrator is really the murderer and he's, you know, so that's unreliable narrator thing. Just like in Gone Girl, you have an unreliable narrator because she's really not dead and so forth and so on. In thrillers, it's almost easier because here's what we know when we go to a James Bond movie. The villain is going to be brilliant and charismatic. They're going to try and either destroy the world or take over the world. And in the end, James Bond is going to thwart their plan and he is not going to die. <laughs> this is what we know. When you pay your 10 bucks for the ticket, you know this is what you're getting from James Bond. And, and good-looking so women, too. Don't forget the women. Oh, yeah, the good-looking women. I, I don't want to be sexist and bring up the Bond I girls and all of that stuff. Bond girls. Well, listen, I, I, I was reading an article the other day. Some of the Bond girls are 85 years old. It's like it's really incredible that it goes back that far, this franchise. But anyway, so in my Jordan Sandor series, um, he's a particular type. He's iconoclastic. He's kind of a wiseacre. He, um, he paints outside the lines. He doesn't behave well. We've got, you know, the classic boss who realizes that he's an amazingly talented agent, but that he is, you know, uh, how shall I say, he doesn't behave well all the time and stuff, stuff like that. And we know what he's going to get into and we're going to we're going to hop around the globe and we're going to track things down and like that. Now you come to fool's errand. No rules, no conventions. A guy finds a letter that his father wrote six years before. So the questions are, does he pursue this this? buried treasure, so to speak. Okay, he does. Now he's going to go, and what's he going to do to track it down? Well, he, there's no roadmap. The father says in the letter, I can't tell you much because if anyone got their hands on this letter, you know, then they could find it. So you're just going to have to think about who I am and what I would do. And so now he's got to track down these old friends of his father's and he's got to talk to them and he's got to figure things out. And he learns, as you know, more than he really wanted to know on many levels. And so it was just outside the normal bounds. I, so I think, I'm not going to say it's a wholly unique book or anything like that. It's nothing that pretentious. This is not, you know, uh, remembrance of things past. This is just, you know, a fun book. Um, but there were no conventions so that, you know, I was sort of like uh, walking a tightrope without a net. Whereas with Sandor, I always knew that the next scene, if the book started to slow down, I just have someone show up at the restaurant and try and kill them. <laughs> Everyone's yeah, happy. Yeah, that's easy. Everyone's happy with that. You know, we shoot up a restaurant, we get kill a bad guy, you know, like that's easy <laughs> stuff. So anyway, not that I'm knocking thriller novels or anything like that, because I enjoy them myself. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, that's what people expect. They expect to see a certain amount of bloodshed and murder and escaping from the bad guys. And That's exactly right. And so, so for example, just since you raised it up, I guess an example that I could use is even with respect to the romance in this novel, it wasn't a typical thing. This wasn't, you know, boy meets girl, boy and girl clash. And we know ultimately they're going to wind up together. This is not, you know, uh, when Harry met Sally or, or you know, or uh, what was the other one that I love so much? You've got mail. It's, you know, it's not like that. This is you don't really know who this woman is from the beginning when she's first introduced. And you don't know for a large part of the book who she is. So. I, I had fun just making all those things up because I could, mm -hmm. you know, whereas in other situations, you wouldn't be allowed to, so to speak. It would, you know, people would, would react negatively and say, well, that's not, you know, that's not a real murder mystery. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, is this the first book or the only book you've written so far that is first person point of view? No. Oh, okay. No, it's, 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 the, it's the, only one, the only one that's been published. 
but no, I've written other books in the first person, which is tough to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no name. I kept, you know, when I when I wrote the yeah. book, it was like that's why I had to email you because I'm I tend to skim because I'm always in a hurry to find out what happened and then I go back and read it again. I'm like, I'm did you. I miss his name somewhere? No, there was okay. So in an earlier draft, his sister in their phone conversation, which happens about a third of the way into the book, says his name. Mm-hmm. And then I decided to take it out and I did this. And, you know, some people don't like that. But since he's telling the story, he didn't need a name. I just wanted it to be anybody, anybody who loved his father, anybody who loved her mm-hmm. mother, whatever. It just could have been anybody. And I felt that, you know, you could just have a sense of who he is because there's not all that much physical description about him because he's telling the story. So he's not saying, I mean, you know, I'm an awful nice looking guy or nothing like that. So, um, so that was also something that I don't think is done all that often, but I just thought it was kind of neat. I mean, everybody else has names and it, and it never was a problem because when characters had conversations, since he's telling the story, he was able to manage the dialogue without having to say, and then Joe said, yeah. because he was who he was. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I, I mean, it didn't bother me at all. It was just, I was afraid that maybe I had missed it, but. Well, that's what happens. A lot of people said, how did I read this whole book and not know what this guy's name was, you know, and they actually will go, go back and say like, wait a minute. <laughs> and, and, and no. So we, we, uh, we took out the only reference to it. Mm-hmm. And, and the interesting thing too, is it allows the reader to build up an image so, you know, I'm sure if you put 10 people in the same room who read the book and each one and you asked each one, tell me what he looks like. Everybody would say something different. Because, right. But it, but at the same time, he was so very real. So that that's what. Well, thank you. That's high praise. That's yeah, high praise it, coming it, from you. It was. And, and, but that's what I wanted. Yeah. I mean, it, I it, it absolutely was. I mean, the, the entire thing, it was just, you know, I have. I have a lot of books in my house and, and the books that I know I'm going to read again, I keep close by. So it's kind of like, okay, you are on the close by staff. Oh, not, thank not you. Not all the way down in the lower level where, okay, I can't find anything else to read. So let me go read this again. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it just, it, it really was um, it just, just at so many levels. It, it just, it just touched me and I just found the whole process or the whole, storyline fascinating um you had mentioned that you you're you are a full-time practicing lawyer right now right um don't tell my clients but i'm pretty much part-time <laughs> at this point I, I i'm i'm practicing law about half the time that i previously did and i write the rest of the time now so i'm writing it at a much faster pace which if we get into the the whole issue of the publishing world one of the issues i have had is it because I was a full-time practicing lawyer with kids and, you know, having to make a living and all that, all that tawdry stuff. Um, my Jordan Sandor books did not come out as soon as they should have after the previous one, which the publisher felt really hurt sales. Mm-hmm. Like there was a two-year lag, then a two and a half year lag, then a three-year lag. And so that was not a good thing. Now I, I'm, I'm cranking things out much more quickly because I could devote more time to it. So hopefully people will start to recognize my name and buy some books, which would be nice because, oh. you know, you like people to read them. It, it, yeah. That's always nice when, when they, when they buy yeah. books. Um, so, so I'm just curious. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like 
every writer's dream. Oh, if I could only cut back on my hours doing the boring stuff. In my case, I'm a copywriter by trade. That's how I pay the bills. So it's like, oh, if I could only, you know, write my novels and my fiction full time. And then when you, you know, it's like, be careful what you wish for. Then when you're given the opportunity, it's kind of like, okay. And with that opportunity comes expectations and you better deliver because that's what you said you wanted to do. Do you find yourself at all on occasion a little worried that you're not going to be as productive as you're supposed to be with all this extra time? That's a very interesting question. You sounded like uh, Spider-Man there, though. With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> so, so now we've got great expectations. I, I will say this. I don't worry too much about production. I've never... Uh, I'm happy to say, I hope I'm not jinxing myself. I never suffered from writer's block. I always have another project in mind. Um, my concern is that we live in, uh, in the writing world, that is, we live in a book scan driven world. And so, you know, my, my spy novels sold pretty well to thrillers. And so we didn't have a problem with those. The, to be honest, Crimes and Passion did not sell as well as I would have liked but I like the characters so much that I've written the sequel and I'm hoping that that catches a little bit of fire. Fool's Errand is a standalone. It's an unusual book, as you know, as we're discussing. So I, I think if I worry about anything, I worry about selling enough books so that I can continue to publish the things that I write. Because, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bump into some, you know, the, the publisher is going to say, listen, you know, this last one didn't do that well. And so maybe you ought to just go back to the Jordan Sandor series or something. You know, I want to be able to, to publish these other books. Like I'm very excited about this book you mentioned the next 10 years, which is again, likely to be a standalone book about this media mogul who disappears and this young man who decides to, uh, to figure out what happened to him. This guy who works for, although we never say it, it's supposed to be like a 60 minutes type show. And he said, boy, this would make a, an interesting segment and maybe it'll help me get a, a promotion or something. And that's how that book kicks off. And, you know, I want people to think of me as somebody who writes entertaining fiction. I, I'm, not a I'm not a literary writer. Uh, you know, when I was young, you know, I love James Joyce. But to this day, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but since you're such a nice person and, and we're doing this, I'm going to confess to you, I've never been able to finish Ulysses. I have tried. I've tried desperately. I mean, I've read his other stuff, but I, I took a course in Ulysses to try and to try and get through it. But it's just impenetrable to me. And, you know, William Faulkner is a very interesting guy. But, you know, if I'm on a desert island, do I want to be stuck with the works of William Faulkner? No, I don't. I want to mm -hmm. I want to be. I want to have books that I can actually enjoy reading where I don't feel like I'm being tortured. <laughs> so, sorry, Bill. But in any case, um, so I want to write books and I, I hope that I'm writing books that people enjoy reading. And so I don't worry about whether or not I'm going to figure out what to write next. I just want people to know I'm there and to buy the books and read them because they're fun to read. Mm -hmm. Well, and that is a good segue into my next question, which okay. is, what is your idea of success, particularly as a writer? How do you measure it as a writer? Boy, that has changed so much for me over the years. You know, in the, in the mundane sense, success as a writer would be selling enough books that I could continue to, to write and then publish the next one. 
But as people close to me say, you know, your success and happiness can't be based on whether a bunch of strangers come and buy your book, right? I mean, that. so what I've learned as I get older is if, if I write something that I'm really proud of, that I feel really good about, that's, that's a success. And I, you know, if I get hit by lightning after this interview and I'm up there and they say, so, you know, how'd you make out? <laughs> I would, I could say, I wrote Fool's Errand and I feel really good about that. So in terms of my writing life, I just want to continue to write things and I'm proud of that I think touch people. And that's what I, that's what I'm, I, I have as a goal, I suppose, but it's tough. I mean, it really is tough. It's tough to write things that you really feel good about. I mean, famous writers, I mean, Kafka died giving instructions to his literary executor to burn everything he had ever written. Thankfully, they didn't, the, what was his name, Max Broad or something like that? He didn't listen. And thank God we have Kafka's work, but he believed that you never stop rewriting. I don't, I don't have that. I don't have that affliction. I feel that once that book is in hardcover and it's done, you know, that's it. And, and actually, I got one reader wrote to me and said there are a couple of typos. <laughs> Can you believe it? A couple of typos in Fool's Errand. And for about a minute, I was tempted to go back and read it from, from cover to cover to see where the titles were. And I said, what's the point? The book's been published. I mean, mm-hmm. the greatest books in history have typos in them. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, so, so I think there, so there are two types of success is what I'm saying. The one is I, I don't need to, like when I was younger, I don't need to sell a million copies of any book. Really. It's not going to change my life. Really. It's not what's, you know, what am I going to do with the money now? I can't write any faster because I had more money in the bank. So I want to, I want to write things that I like. And I hope that people buy my books. Well, I, and, and, I, and I think that's, that's really an excellent point because, you know, we, we can't control what happens after we've written a book. We can't control, first of all, if the publisher accepts it. We cannot control if it wins awards. We can't control if, um, if anybody buys it. It could be, you know, the best thing we've ever written but if for some reason, I mean, we all know about, I can't think of any titles right off the bat, but we all know that there are some books that really didn't generate a following till probably long after the bones were moldering in the grave. Um, so, so it's kind of like you almost, you, you have to have a standard for yourself and, and the standard can't be money. I mean, you know, no, it, it's- no. It, it can't be because I, I think when it comes to writing, especially this kind of writing, the kind of writing where, where you're doing it because you have something to say, something you want to share, not right. because you've just gotten this assignment and you have to you know write 400 words on the new toilet paper. Um, no offense, I'll write my 400 words. But, um, but I mean, when it, when, it comes, when it comes from your soul, if you're not happy with it, then it doesn't matter if other people buy it because then you kind of feel like you're a fraud. Right. As they said it was good and you're thinking to yourself it was really not. And if it really is good, that that has to be your love. And we have to always be trying to exceed our own idea of what is good. So what we thought was really good for us in terms of our writing ability 10 years ago, we, we really should have exceeded that. That's right. No, I totally agree. And as you say, I mean, 
you know, I alluded this to, to this earlier, but F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote what I think is one of the great books of the 20th century was The Great Gatsby, because it really captured the time. It's only 50,000 words. It's brilliant. He died at, what, 44 or something of a heart attack. And the book was out of print. I mean, just I, I, to this day, I can't get my mind around that. But The Great Gatsby, you couldn't buy a copy. And it was only years later that some university started to teach it. And the next thing you knew, but, you know, it's a perennial bestseller now of, of, on some levels, you know, because people picked up on it, but it wasn't in print. So, you know, Somerset Maugham, who I'm a big fan of, I think he did some wonderful work. And it was funny that he, he valued his playwriting more than his novels, interestingly, and yet his novels are the things that survive. And Razor's Edge is one of the great books also, I think. But he had this great quote, and I'm, I'm grossly paraphrasing, but really he said, if a writer ever wants an injection of reality, just go into a bookstore and walk around the fiction section. <laughs> you will see how many new books are coming out. And this is in his time. Think about what's going on today. Mm-hmm. But just walk around and see how many books there are and think about how hard each one of those writers worked to get that written, to get it published, to get it into the bookstore. You don't know if it's good, bad, horrible, wonderful. And, and you're just one book in that sea uh, of, of releases. And, and nowadays it's, you know, every week, every month. I mean, Amazon, mm-hmm. my God, if I, I get 12 emails a day with, you'll like these books. I mean, if I ever, <laughs> I would be buried in books if I bought all the books they want me to buy. So, um, so you have to be realistic about it. And, you know, there are some people who rise to the level of the bestseller. And it's almost like, and I'm not saying this for sour grapes, but if you look at who the bestsellers are, maybe I don't want to be in that club. You know, I try and read some of that stuff. It just, I can't. And and I respect these people because they're so smart. I mean, James Patterson is a genius. I mean, I've met him at a writer's conference. He gets it. What does he get? Like 12 books a year out because he doesn't write hardly any of them himself anymore. Once in a while, he writes one. He pays these writers a fortune to write the books. He gives them a one-page outline, and he said that he has a file cabinet full of ideas that he could keep people busy for the next hundred years. I mean, that's it, that's genius. I mean, to come up with that many ideas and keep those people going, and I try and read them, and with all due respect, you know, some of them make good movies, but they're just not my thing. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, so we just keep slogging along and doing the best we can do. Yeah, and and I think I think that is all we can do, and and if. And if it ends and we have three books to our name, 30 books to our name, but we're proud of them, then that's, you know, that's what matters. I mean, not that I would turn down a big publishing contract. No, of course. Not that I would ever forget to cash a royalty check, but I mean, I want to be proud. (laughs) I want to be proud of what I've done. I want to feel like I'm the best. That's right. I'm with you 100%. You have to feel good about what it is. Because as you said so rightly before, otherwise you feel like a fraud if people start complimenting and saying, oh, they're fawning all over you and all this. And, and you know that it was crap. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's not a good feeling. So you want to do your best work and you have to rewrite it as many times as it needs to be rewritten until you get to that point. That's and great. some things, as I say, you just shove in a draw- drawer and say, this is, this is fatally flawed and that's it. And I have books like that, you know. Mm-hmm. that are just sitting there in TypeScript. They're not even on the computer anymore. It's just like maybe one day I'll go back and look at them again. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But no, you're, you're absolutely right. Well, I have so much enjoyed having you on the on the podcast and talking well, about you. 
writing and and the process and and our standards and our goals and our dreams i mean you gotta have dreams right so but um but thank you so much i really appreciate it and best of luck with your future projects well thank you very much for having me um i just want to say george higgins was a, a crime writer he was quite good he wrote the friends of eddie coyle but he wrote a terrific book called on writing and at the end of it it's very short and it's terrific. And if, and if any of your listeners are writers, which I hope they are, he said, in the final analysis, writers write. And that is the best advice anyone has ever given me about the, of the craft of writing, because you could talk about your story, you could share your ideas, all that stuff. But in the final analysis, you have to sit there and you have to fill up those blank pages, even if you throw them out and start again tomorrow, writers write. And if you keep at it, you get better at it, just like exercising a muscle. You just get better. And so that's life. And so I hope whoever's out there who's writing, keep at it because we need stories. Well, that's excellent advice. And thank you again for being on the show. Thanks.